Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures high yield account. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Not so fast. Markets and people eager to get back to business stumble over a resurgent virus. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. The addition of the Chinese economy to the global marketplace will result in a more efficient worldwide allocation of resources and will raise standards of living in China and its trading partners. Should China accept the challenge of international competition embodied in World Trade Organization membership. It will doubtless promote internal economic development, encourage the adoption of modern technologies, and contribute to lifting its citizens out of poverty. That was Chairman Greenspan with President Clinton back in 2000, arguing that China should be admitted to the WTO. Flash forward, and it didn't work out quite the way that they'd planned. Letting China into the WTO did not take care of all of the trade tensions between the United States and China, something that Richard Haas, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, addresses in his new book, The World, A Brief Introduction. Well, I think it's fair to say that the U.S.-China relationship is probably the single most important bilateral relationship of this century, or certainly for this era of, of history. In the same way, say, that the U.S.-Soviet one was for the, during the Cold War, the same way that the French-German-English relationship was for the first half of the 20th century. So it's, it's that critical. Uh, we do not want a Cold War, but it takes two countries to avoid it. If you do have a Cold War, they're risky and they're expensive and they're distracting. 
And ideally, what we'd like to do is figure out a way that even when we disagree with China, we can still do some things together, whether it's mutually advantageous trade or working on climate change or reigning in North Korea. That's the, that's the diplomatic uh, goal. I would say that this administration has made a tough situation tougher because they have been strategically incoherent. And what we've seen in the last 24 hours is yet another example where they're all over the place on China. They, they talk tough. They talk sweet. They act tough. They then act just the opposite. And you know, I expect there's people in China trying to figure out just what U.S. policy is. Yeah, how much of the problem, insofar as we have a problem we seem to with China, is because of the confusion, as you talk about, even with uh, John Bolton's book, also would sow some confusion in there, and how much is it with the overall approach? Because President Trump has been adamant saying he wants to deal with everybody bilaterally. He doesn't like multilateral. That's a bit different, isn't it, from the Cold War, where we did have other people on our side there? And we should have other people on our side here. You know, having allies and partners turns out to be the great structural advantage of American foreign policy. And to throw away that advantage makes absolutely no sense to me. Just take one example from the recent news, David. You had China and India come to the blows along their disputed border area. If there was ever a great time to get India to align itself closer to us against China, you would have thought this was it. But instead, U.S.-Indian relations have been mired in all sorts of bilateral trade disputes. We're hammering the Japanese and the South Koreans over how much they spend uh, on their military and on U.S. forces being based there. Again, they are natural partners, they're natural allies uh, to, to reign in China. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, the first big foreign policy decision this president made was not to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Well, that was the best way to associate ourselves with any number of like-minded countries, and we could have raised uh, the standards that China would have to meet in the way of, of trade. So again, we, we talked off on occasion, but again, the policy is somewhere between weak uh, and incoherent. So I think a supporter of President Trump, if he or she were here, would say, wait a second, the multilateral didn't really work well with China. I mean, take the example of WTO. We let them in thinking Mm -hmm. they'd really accommodate their system to the WTO. And if anything, the reverse worked. It didn't happen. So is it fair to say President Trump needed to go a different direction because the multilateral just wasn't working with China? Fair enough. And I think he gets points for having pointed out the problem. But you've got to replace a flawed system with something better. And that's where it's fallen short. I think a lot of people were unrealistic about what they thought China's membership in the WTO would accomplish. They were never going to be turned into a, a parliamentary democracy. They were never going to be turned into a free market. So I think it was naive to expect that the most you could expect, I thought, was that China would continue to act in terms of its foreign policy in a somewhat restrained way. And by, by and large, they, they did. But once they were in, we should have monitored it closely. And as China got more and more powerful economically, the terms should have been tightened and adjusted. They weren't. And that's, again, where TPP came in. That was the way to essentially introduce a new broadly held set of standards, and we didn't do it. And I just say, you know, the administration trashed it, but it couldn't have been so bad because they borrowed from it heavily when they negotiated the USMCA with Mexico and Canada. Is there a way to really deal with China effectively on these economic issues because their structure is so different? As you pointed out in your book, actually, you talk about the fact that the WTO would have to adjust to a world in which there's so many state subsidies, the state-owned enterprises over there, what they've done with technology transfer, things like that. Is there a way multilaterally to handle those fundamental structural differences in an economy? Not through the WTO, because by definition, you've got to get everybody to agree to it. So I think the WTO is pretty much reduced now to simply being a adjudication tribunal where there are disputes. 
I think you're going to have to negotiate the new rules of trade through bilateral or multilateral arrangements. And that's why, again, I keep coming back to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And I think with China, we've got to be realistic. You are never going to get China to agree to taking the government out of economic policy. They're not going to stop subsidies and all that. So what it means to me then is, okay, if we can't get them to stop, how do we outcompete with them? Why is this administration cutting the amount of basic research it's, it's spending, uh, money it's spending on basic research for the American economy? We can outcompete China. Uh, and we, so we don't need to look to trade agreements to, to, to write the, the balance between ourselves and China. We can do that ourselves. That was Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Coming up, we talk with someone who is trying his best to get his company back up and going again. Jim Farley, the COO of the Ford Motor Company. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Ford Motor Company is particularly keen to get back up and running again, not only because the money it loses when it lies idle, but also because it has a big relaunch of its F-150 pickup, its most popular and one of its most profitable vehicles. I talked with the Ford Motor COO, Jim Farley, about this big launch event in the middle of combating the coronavirus. It's been a, a challenge uh, like we've never seen, but Ford always steps up. We're the first company to start making PPE of all the car companies. And look, the F-150 is the most popular vehicle in the United States. We make more uh, vehicles in the U.S. than any other OEM by a large part. This is important for our economy as well, uh, because the scale of F-150 at a million units a year is just huge. You know, we planned this product four or five years ago. Uh, we're finally getting our plants up to full production. Uh, it's been really challenging. Uh, in the second quarter, we were completely done. I mean, we had no factories open, but we used that time to prepare to bring people back, tens of thousands of people back. They're now in the factories. How far back are you at this point? What percentage of capacity roughly are you running at? We're just under 100% in North America. I think we're at 96%. We're still having some hiccups with uh, part suppliers in Mexico. Uh, we're working through uh, Chihuahua and Puebla, some of the States in Mexico are still operating 30 or 40% capacity. We use those parts uh, even in our U.S. produced vehicles, but we're working through it. Air shipment, helicopters, we're, we're doing everything we can to keep the factories going. Our, our team's been incredible. You know, we have a factory in the middle of Chicago, downtown Chicago, and uh, the team is working every day. Um, and in fact, the playbook for our, our safety now um, some of our, our team may say the safest part of their life is coming to work at Ford. Oh, boy, that's a, that's a real tribute. Uh, so uh, we're seeing some flare-ups now in the virus in some places like Florida, Arizona, Texas, California. Is that affecting your operations at Ford at this point at all? Not yet, but we really are watching this carefully. We, we look at the um, infection data by location with all of our plants and all of our facilities every day. Um, and we're always going to put our, our team uh, safety first. So if we have to, you know, stop operations, we will. We won't hesitate at all. Um, but, you know, so far, our playbook has worked really well. And it helped a lot to be in the PPE production business. We've had no issues with PPE availability. You know, we have just tens of thousands of people back to work. And so it takes a lot of PPE to keep everyone safe. With respect to the F-150 that you're launching here, uh, it is, of course, it's terribly important. I think it's 
been the most popular vehicle in the United States for 43 years, is what I have read, actually. Uh, you also have had some competition recently from Ram, from Chevy. What are you doing in this new Ford F-150 to really fight that off? Well, this is a big change for us. A lot of our competitors have upgraded their products. This is the first big upgrade for us in five or six years. Uh, look, we're doing a lot. We have all new powertrains. We have a new hybrid, first in the market. It gets 700 miles on one tank. We have an onboard generator. A lot of our work teams have to buy these uh, generators. They're very expensive, $10,000 plus. You now can get your F-150 to do that and not have uh, you know, any emissions on the job site and run it from your truck. We have a 12-inch screen, a full flat seat. Uh, we have a whole tailgate solution for customers so they can use it for you know, productivity. Uh, there's just, we're, we're now adding over-the-air update, um, just like your Tesla, to improve the product over time, whether it's your voice control or new features like towing features. So uh, it's a big change for us, and it comes uh, at the right time. When you talk about things like the generator, like the touchscreen, things like that, it points us back to the fact that uh, the Ford F-Series has really been particularly important to the commercial sector. Uh, certainly people buy it for home use, but a lot of people, these are contractors, people like that. Is that going to yep. remain your sweet spot that you have to hold and defend? It really is. Uh, Bill Ford Tough is what Ford's all about. We're the most popular vehicle in the U.S., like you said, and we're only second to iPhone in terms of total revenue. This vehicle is really important for the U.S. economy as well. And our core customer is that work customer. Uh, they buy this as a tool. Uh, it has to last a long time and be durable and have all the new features for productivity, including great fuel economy and, and low cost of ownership. And that's where we excel. We're the number one commercial brand in the U.S. and in Western Europe, not just the F-Series, but also our transit van. Are you seeing a longer term change in demand? For example, you talk about the transit van. We have a lot more home delivery of everything these days as we can't go out to places. Is there a shift in demand that you're seeing on the customer side? We are. Uh, we're seeing a move to electric. A lot of our large customers are asking for a full electric. In fact, we're going to be launching in the next 24 months a fully electric F-150 and a fully electric transit van. Um, and uh, that's, I think, the first full line electric, um, you know, offer out there. Yes, we're seeing more electric requirements. We're seeing the new technology requirements like over there update. People are going to keep a truck for 10 years. They want it to get better every year. Um, and vans are getting more popular uh, for, for our customers because of the uh, delivery service. Uh, we're seeing demand for transit go through the roof, frankly. What are your expectations? I think you ship something like 900,000 units of the F-Series last year. What are your expectations going forward? And particularly, I'm mindful of the fact you're selling this new vehicle into an economic recession. And a lot of the people who have been hit the hardest are the small businesses who are your commercial customers. Yeah, it was interesting. We have uh, all of our uh, data, uh, connected car data we've been looking at during the pandemic. We can track the number of trips by location and how it's changing. And we saw a dramatic reduction. But frankly, the trips for commercial vehicles really didn't go down that much. A lot of our customers have been working through this pandemic. They're plumbers, electricians, construction workers. They've been busy. Um, now, no doubt about it, we're seeing the market down, and we're planning our business to be below pre-COVID industrial demand. Uh, so we see the industry coming down. Uh, that's how we're planning our business. We think that's prudent. 
We'd love it to be fantastic and, and strong like it was in January and December last year, but that's not what we're planning our business around. If there is the demand there, which you certainly hope for, how do you make sure you can fulfill it? You had a little stumble on the Explorer, you know, a little while ago. How do you make sure you don't have yep. a similar problem with the F-150? It's a great question. You know, we've done a lot to de-risk our launches compared to the Explorer and the Aviator launch in Chicago. Uh, now we've we're going to build, we have two plants for F-150, for example, we're going to stagger the launch so we build, we don't convert both plants at the same time. Uh, we've learned a lot from what happened at Explorer, and now Explorer's doing great, uh, you know, production is up to full capacity, uh, and we've learned a lot, and we've done some soul searching, uh, but I'm, I'm really excited about how the team has responded, and, you know, we're going to take our time with these launches to make sure that we have world-class quality when we launch. That was Jim Farley, Chief Operating Officer of the Ford Motor Company. Coming up, the challenges of reopening an economy when the coronavirus is still with us. We talk with Senator Mike Braun of Indiana. That's next. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. States may be struggling with a resurgent virus, but Senator Mike Braun of Indiana is adamant that whatever we do, we cannot shut down the entire economy again. Well, if we do a shutdown again, someone needs to have their heads examined because all along, that was only necessary in a few places where it just cascaded out of control. Shutting down early, opening up late, and a one-size-fits-all approach that many places took, that's going to make their recoveries harder. A couple things make me optimistic about how we're going to recover. Number one, we had the strongest economy that I had ever been a part of, and that was running my own enterprise for 37 years. We were in excellent shape going into it. Credit that to the job and tax cut bill of 2017, President Trump leading on it. If we go back to some of the policies and regulations that were in place before that, there will be a tough recovery. But if we just take everything we've learned about the disease, we know a lot more about it now. It's got peculiarities. And entrepreneurs and business owners are good at multitasking. They shut down the entire downtown in my hometown. My wife's had a business. It'll be 42 years this September. 
they would have been the ones most capable of distancing, wearing masks. And they have, like all business owners, great concern to keep their customers and their employees healthy. Going forward, I think you'll see, and we'll have the data, that the places that didn't take that overly prescriptive approach where they were doing two things at once are going to have good recoveries, and I think that's going to benefit the country in its entirety. The places that locked down too long, like a Kentucky or a Michigan, where they maybe didn't need to treat Detroit and the rest of the state the same way, or Louisville and Lexington, the rest of the state of Kentucky, Indiana had a pretty good balance, and I think we're going to recover accordingly. Senator, how much more help do we need from the Congress? It looks like you're going to have a pretty busy July because a lot of people are talking about a couple of cliffs that may be coming up in the middle and the end of the month, particularly unemployment insurance and some other assistance to the economy. What are you in favor of Congress doing at this point, if anything, before you go on August Yeah, I think Leader McConnell's got that right. We need to see how 1, 2, 3, and 3, 5 have been working. Uh, we're not using all of the PPP due to the fact that it's now got some guidance on it that uh, is keeping it from going to larger small businesses and trying to get to the places that need it the most. And if this recovery does what I think it's going to do, and I think President Trump has set the stage for that, and certain governors that were a little more, you know, willing to take some risk, maybe we won't need it. And that doesn't mention the fact that we've spent $2.8 trillion and we're running trillion-dollar structural deficits. So I think we've got to be very careful about what we do going forward. And uh, I think that uh, rather than maybe adding flexibility, finding uh, what we might have missed uh, on the first go-around, I'm hoping that it doesn't take anything significant out of D.C. We've borrowed every penny that we put towards it Uh, I was okay with it back then because of the uncertainty. Now let's emphasize on smartly reopening the economy, and hopefully that'll do the heavy lifting. You're introducing a bill in Congress to help address some of the concerns about policing efforts that come in the tragic killing of George Floyd. Tell us about that bill, what it does, and why it's the necessary and appropriate reaction. I believe, though, for Republicans and Democrats in this moment uh, that's in front of us, we've got to do maybe something more than the lower hanging fruit that we both agree to. And that comes to this discussion of qualified immunity. And for business owners, uh, people that come from Main Street like myself, uh, accountability and transparency are a way of life. So I think for law enforcement, they're grappling with something that has stigmatized their business, their all the good things they do because of these horrific incidents that occur far too often. So this bill addresses a law that's been in place since 1871 that had nothing touching it until the 60s when they started to judicially qualify immunity and to where in the 80s it's gotten to the point where you can hardly redress or take to task these incidents that we all know need to be addressed. So This sets some clarification about when you have something that comes to the standard of a George Floyd, a Rashard Brooks, a Breonna Taylor, uh, you've got to have some ability to hold people accountable. It also adds officially uh, the organizations themselves into having that accountability. So far, 
anybody like me, this is easy because in most places you're fully accountable. You deal with full transparency. And David, I also make it analogous to health care. In the year and a half I've been here, I've been probably the most vocal Republican about the industry reforming itself. Be transparent. Embrace competition. Don't have barriers to entry. And that's been a tough struggle, too, but I'll keep talking about it because I know it's right. That was Senator Mike Braun of Indiana. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We wrap up the week now with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, it's been something of a tumultuous week in the equity markets in particular, as the equity markets come to drips with really increase in coronavirus cases in places like Florida and Texas and California and Arizona. I have to say, to give you your due, for at least a month or so, you've been warning if we come back too fast and really haven't put in a stake in the heart of this virus, we got problems. It turns out you may be right. I think so, David. We we were operating with a contagion factor nationwide of 0.8. If we don't do anything, that contagion factor is two and a half. So it doesn't, it means you can't move a very large fraction of the way back to normal without getting into trouble. And we've moved maybe a third of the way back to normal and that's too much and we're now in trouble uh, in a set of places and markets are waking up to that. I don't think the biggest problem is the trouble we're in right now. I think Texas and Florida will be forced to backtrack and move towards closing down. I think we will close down uh, more in a certain number of places. I think the discouraging thing, which I think the market is starting to come to grips with, but still hasn't fully come to grips with, is that until we have a new vaccine, or we have a much better therapy, David, we're now looking at the new normal. We're not going to have probably catastrophic episodes, or at least not very many, like what happened in New York, because we'll get on top of them a little faster. But we're not trying to reduce this virus to a negligible level. And so we're going to live with a chronic ongoing problem, a chronic ongoing cause of death. I don't know whether it'll be 500 people dying a day or 1,000 people dying a day, I guess somewhere in between. But that's going to be the new reality until we have a vaccine. And while that reality is happening, we're not going to be able to have a lot of the things uh, that we're used to. If you look in detail at the plans for the places that are coming back, it's not all the way back in terms of what's going to happen in a junior high school classroom, what's going to happen on a college campus, what the density is going to be uh, in a restaurant or a bar. And what we're seeing is that we got to it uh, too quickly. So I think we're going to be living with uh, what I've called very mediocre whack-a-mole as our strategy for well over a year. And I don't think it's going to be great. I'm not sure it's going to be a W with a major double dip, but it's sure not going to be continued growth at the rate we've seen. 
So, so, Larry, at the very end of this week, we heard from the vice president, Mike Pence, who came out with his task force. And what he said is these are isolated outbreaks. It's county by county, even community by community. And the only real response is to listen to your local authorities. A different approach than was taken, for example, in Europe. Uh, where is he wrong? It's whack-a-mole, but he says we can contain this in isolated instances. Well, first, he's wrong to say that it's isolated instances. It's an odd thing to say since it's most of his electoral coalition led by Texas and Florida that he's calling isolated. It's the first time I've heard a Republican uh, describe them as just a few stray parts of uh, America. Second, uh, I guess everybody's got their own idea of isolated. I don't think of a new killing factor that kills more Americans in a year by far than uh, murder or suicide or opioids all put together. I don't call that something that's like a minor factor uh, in terms of global health. Third, I don't think of something that enters into every family in America's life planning when they think about whether they're gonna go out to the store as uh, being isolated um, or minor. I don't think of the United States doing uh, far worse than countries in Africa, far worse than most countries in America, right. in, in Europe, in protecting its citizens. The essence of, after all, national security. I don't think of that as being an isolated and small thing. And the reason we formed the United States 244 years ago was because we recognized that we were stronger as a union. So when we have a contagious disease that doesn't know from a state border or a county seat, I can't imagine why when it came to issues like uh, pulling together for vac uh, on uh, vaccines, or when it comes to issues like regulating what's a safe health practice when people can just drive across a state border with right. complete uh, impunity, I can't imagine what could be causing these people to think that this is something that's best dealt with in 50 state units or a thousand uh, local government uh, units. It seems to me to be a a contradiction of the very idea of the United States to treat a problem um, that's fundamentally the most fundamental national security problem in terms of the lives and livelihoods of Americans that we've had in the last 60 right. years. To treat that as local, I think it's madness. We have, of course, the epidemiological problem to deal with. We also have an economy that really is struggling quite a bit. Overall this week, what message did the market send to, for example, the Federal Reserve about how long they're going to have to keep going with their support, given where we're headed? It can't be any encouraging uh, message, uh, David. But look, uh, I've also been saying this uh, from the beginning. If people think they're going to get a disease that might kill them or might make them contagious in a way that kills their mother, they are not going to go shopping and buy a new car or a new washing machine, whatever the interest rate uh, is. You cannot push on a string. And so, yes, the Fed can play some defense against cascading bankruptcy. Yes, we can 
give for a time transfer payments that will maintain uh, the income of people. Yes, there's some opportunities we should take advantage of in this moment of low interest rates to invest in our country's future. But fundamentally, we have to address the pandemic if our economy is going to move forward. And the Fed can't know anything about where it's going to be a year and a half from now without knowing uh, where the virus is going to be. And I think increasingly they should adjust their communication strategy to use virus time rather than calendar time. Make statements like, well, exactly. uh, we're going to keep interest rates at zero until a year after the virus is fully under control. That's the kind of an announcement I think they should be thinking in terms of. Which finally leads us to the question, have we, have the markets internalized just how long this may take? I think there's more risk of markets being too optimistic at this point than there is of markets being uh, too pessimistic. And I don't think the fundamentals of the economy are that terribly good right now. I think they're as bad as they've been probably in my professional uh, lifetime. I think what is true is that what markets price is what might be called the S&P economy or the corporate economy. And that's a very different thing than uh, the real economy. You know, uh, Apple accounts for 5% of uh, the market value of the U.S. stock market. It accounts for five one hundredths of 1% of employment uh, in uh <laughs> the United States. And so I think we need policies that, yeah, we can't have the financial system collapse, but the priority's got to be Main Street at this point. There you have the S&P economy as opposed to the real economy. Thank you so much to Larry Summers. Always great to have him with us. He, of course, is the former Secretary of Treasury, now at Harvard, also was the director of the Economic Council at the White House under President Barack Obama. Finally, we leave you with one more thought. Take me out to the ball game. Never has the idea been so appealing as this spring, given what we've all been through. And this week, it appeared that we would get baseball back, sort of. The players, well, the players will be there, but we, the fans, will not be in the stands. Why wait until you can fill a stadium before you start to bring the team back? And if you can televise it in the meantime, great. And because we won't be there in the stands, another key element of baseball will be missing this year, peanuts. Peanuts have been essential to the game since the 1890s. This year, there are 2.3 million pounds of peanuts that have been harvested, roasted, and are waiting in cold storage. But take heart, some grocery stores may buy some of those peanuts, put them in bags, and sell them to us so that we can bring them home and eat them as we watch baseball on our television sets. Not ideal, but better than nothing. So if you need another reason to root, not just for the home team, but also for a vaccine, think of those peanut vendors tossing bags of peanuts to us in the stands of baseball games. Well, maybe next year. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week.
Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.